0: What we want to do in this time is explain what the gospel is, what it isn't, and how what the gospel is impacts our lives. Because there is a common conception about the gospel that it is only the entry point of the Christian life. Like this message that Jesus died on the cross, and rose again, is the message that we have to accept and believe personally for our salvation. And sometimes people think, it's just the beginning of the Christian life, and then you move past the Gospel onto other things, in order to grow as a Christian. But, when you look at what the Gospel means in the New Testament, you discover that the Gospel is not just the entry point of the Christian life, it's not that you grow past the Gospel, you grow in the Gospel. It's kind of like we tend to view the gospel as training wheels. Does anybody remember using training wheels? Raise your hand if you actually remember using training wheels. I I remember using training wheels. I remember the comforting sound of those wheels rattling behind my back wheel, just telling me that I'm not gonna come crashing down either to the right or to the left if I somehow slow or lose my balance. But the thing about training wheels is you don't want them to stay on your bike. I mean, no respectable adult wants to be seen (laughs) riding a bike with training wheels, that would just be a little weird. Three of our kids know how to ride a bike without training wheels. All the kids, I remember the agonizing experience of taking the training wheels off and trying to get them to build confidence without it. Training wheels are things that you dispense of once you move on to other things, once you build greater skills. We tend to think about the gospel like that. Okay, yes, I know Jesus died for me. I know that he rose from the dead. I know that by faith and repentance, I am saved. And now let's talk about the good stuff. Let's talk about everything else. But I would say the training wheels is a bad metaphor for the gospel in our life. Today, a better way to think about it would be the A to Z of the Christian life. The A to Z. In other words, this is everything that we need, the letters A to Z, everything you need to write a sentence. And no matter how great an author can be, you think of the great authors like William Shakespeare, he still had access to the same 26 letters of the English alphabet that you and I do. You don't move past the alphabet, you continue to use the alphabet. You don't don't say, okay, I'm going to invent some new letters and write some even greater books. No, you stick with the 26 letters that you have and you learn to use those more effectively. Right? This is a better metaphor for the gospel, but there's one important difference between using the A through Z metaphor as uh, the gospel and uh, what the gospel really is. When you learn the alphabet and you learn how to write and learn how to read, learn grammar, uh, you have, the alphabet kind of recedes into the background of your consciousness. Like, you're not always thinking, oh, what comes right after the letter T? uh oh, and you're, you're, your fingers hovered over the keyboard trying to think of what to type next. No, you just know it so well, you don't have to think about it anymore. But with the Gospel, you have to keep the Gospel always in mind. You can't just say, oh, now I don't need to think about it anymore. No, the more you think about it, the more effective you can become. The more you think about it, the more fruitful you'll be as a Christian. And so let me suggest a third metaphor, a third picture of the relationship between uh, uh, us and the gospel. And and it would be this. Imagine uh, an ancient farmer plowing his field. And in order to make these absolute straight furrows... He picks a point on the horizon and he keeps that right in his focus. And as he moves the plow along, let's say he's behind an animal, behind an ox or something, as he moves it along, he keeps that in focus. And and when he hits a rut that throws the plow to the left a little bit, he keeps keeping in focus, he pushes it right back to where it needs to be. And then he moves forward and as he hits a rock or a clump of grass that pushes him to the right, with that in his focus, he pushes it right back to where it needs to be. He's always correcting his course according to that one focal point. And he has to keep that in mind. If, if let's say, a bird starts flying along and then lands on a bush nearby, and his, his eye is, is directed toward that bird, suddenly the plow is going to start veering that direction because he's not keeping in focus. That's what the Gospel must be in our lives it's that which we constantly keep in focus so that we can correct the course of our lives. So that we could constantly be living in light of the the gospel. And I'm going to explain what these things mean, but for now I'm trying to suggest a metaphor or a picture that will help us understand what our relationship with the gospel should be. And let me give you an example of this, maybe a story that might help. Uh, Let's say Steve is a believer But he struggles with pride, and he has a knack for looking very put together and polished on the surface, but he can't help taking a kind of smug delight when other people fail. I know it's bad, it's bad, but he does it, okay? I know no one else does that when you see someone fail or or stumble in some way, but that's what Steve does, okay? Let's just say this is his problem. And one day, when a Christian co-worker loses his temper at work, Steve finds himself rolling his eyes and shaking his head and thinking, I'm so glad I'm not like that. You see, his plow is veering off toward pride, toward self-satisfaction. The following Sunday, Steve's church observes the Lord's Supper, and as Steve bows his head in prayer before taking the elements, he begins to think about Christ's death for him. And he thinks this, my sin was so bad, Jesus died for it. And then he has his flashback to his smug response to his coworker's flare up. And he instantly realizes that his sin is just as great, and Christ's love is just as great for him as it is for his coworker. And he brings his plow back toward the gospel and begins again. Making a straight line toward the gospel. See, that's how the gospel corrects our thinking as we remember the basic truths. The A through Z of the Christian life that Jesus died for me, He loves me and all the implications of that grand and ancient message, the the Christian life finds its impulse in that. You don't move past that, like training wheels that you take off. You live in it. You grow in it. That's what the gospel should be like for us. And so, that's why we're having this series, right? That's why we're focusing on that for these these six weeks. Uh, I hope that what you find is not something that's like, oh, I cannot believe we're doing a series on the gospel. I already know this. But, I'm so glad to learn the fuller implications of this message that has given me life and rejoices my heart. And brothers and sisters, there is a danger in thinking that the gospel is like training wheels. There is a danger, actually there, there are three that I want to I walk you through, and you see, I think you see that on your handout. If you see the gospel as training wheels. First of all, holiness becomes a drudgery instead of a delight. Holiness becomes a drudgery instead of a delight. Throughout the New Testament, we read these exhortations for us to live godly lives. For us to live for God and, and abandon self. Uh, we read these exhortations, for, for example, to, to love one another, And to forgive one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. That God for Christ's sake has forgiven you is an expression of the central message of the gospel. And out of that springs forgiveness. Why do I have to forgive people? It goes back to this message that amazes angels. That... God's good news, the the very message by which you are saved. Uh, In the the letter to Titus, Paul says that we should be a people that are zealous for good works, that are shunning ungodliness in our own lives and, and all the kind of worldly cravings that we can tend to have. Why? It's because Jesus died for us. See, it is the gospel that motivates our holiness and without that pursuing holiness apart from the gospel then becomes a matter of just external It's what you do because you think that's the way Christians are supposed to act. But you're not doing it motivated out of something that is genuinely real and alive in your heart. There is no true motivation, Christian motivation for holiness, apart from convictions about the gospel. It simply isn't the case. What you'll end up doing is just putting on a show so other people can think that you're living a Christian life. Here's another danger of seeing the gospel as mere training wheels. Christian unity is threatened. Christian unity is threatened. In other words, as a, as a church, think about this, what unifies us as a church? Is it that we all like the patriots? No, no why? Because not everybody likes the patriots, All right. What what are what unify, I I'm not gonna I don't want to know who said no, but that's fine. But I, I will protect your identity. Um, what unifies us as a church is is, is it that we all are all um, in a certain let's say socioeconomic strata. No. What unifies us as a church is it that we've all attained a certain standards in, in pious living no the thing that unifies as a a church is the gospel it's that we have this in common I'm a great sinner he is a greater savior that's what unifies us that is our Christ is our common bond he's what and, and once we start creating unity about anything over anything else then you get these these poles these centers of gravity that begin drifting us apart. I like this kind of thing. Or I like this kind of thing. And pretty soon, instead of centering on the gospel, on this central message that humbles and delights us, we find our, our being pulled towards something else. Unless we get the gospel right. Unless we're unified around that. Uh, here's another a way in which Christian unity can be threatened. It's not just that we, that we become unified around lesser things. Is it? Let's say that we define the gospel so broadly that pretty much there is real no biblical gospel being preached here. Then where's the unity? You see, the gospel is essential for Christian unity. Here's the third thing that would be threatened. If we see the gospel as training wheels, that is, and by training wheels, in case you're just coming in and missed the metaphor, that is this something that we can just dispense of once we, uh, once we grow out of it, then our Bibles will make little sense. You know, some people come to the Bible as if it's this, a compilation of tips and tricks for living the good life. Some people come to the Bible as if it's, it's a bunch of stories that will inspire you to live more morally or have higher ethical standards. But the Bible fundamentally is not a book about what we must do, nor it is, a bo- is it a book about what we wish God would do for us. It is fundamentally a book about what God has done for us through Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. And unless you lose sight of that, you'll be reading your Bible for some sort of tip as to how how can I save up for retirement better? How can I fix my marriage? Are those things important? Absolutely. But they find their spring and rationale in the gospel message, which is central to what the Bible is all about. How do I know that? This is what Jesus said to his disciples when they're walking on the road of Emmaus. He's walking along and He unfolds beginning at Moses. That's the very beginning of your Bible and through all the the, pro, the Psalms and the Prophets. And He's teaching them what the Bible says about Himself. That is, the Bible is fundamentally about who Jesus is and what He has done to save us. And once we lose sight of that, our Bibles won't make sense to us. And so, th- this is why I, I'm, I'm saying that we cannot see the Gospel as mere training wheels But we must see it as the very spring, and impetus, and source of our life as Christians. It's multifaceted, it's endless. It is, I love this expression in 1 Peter, chapter 1, that we kind of got our our title of this series from. It's the message that amazes angels. You get bored with the gospel, you're like, maybe you don't know what we're talking about here. We're talking about a, a message that is so multifaceted, so spectacular, so endless in its implications that that beings who exceed you in intelligence can't get enough of it. Angels are bending down to see what this is all about. If this is something that fascinates angels, it's something that should hold our interest as well. So, let's look now at the... Components of the gospel message. Okay, the components of the gospel message. Um, you know, I'm going to just fly through here because, for the sake of time, uh, we'll come. We'll be coming back to this later on in this series on the gospel. But I want to point out to you that there are three parts uh, of the gospel message when it's presented. And to see this, I want you to turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, and if you look at verse 22, this is Peter's proclamation of the gospel. And he's, he's first of all simply reporting these historical facts. In verse 22 he says, it was Jesus of Nazareth, so Nazareth is a geographical location rooted in history, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst." He did miracles, Jesus did miracles. And, he, he died, he was crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men, and he rose from the dead. Right. There are some basic historical facts that form the gospel message. You cannot believe the gospel unless you believe that this really happened. And we're going to be looking at this later on when we talk about gospel counterfeits. There are some people that will say that you can still believe the gospel without really believing that it happened, historically. That, that your confidence in this gospel message is not undermined by the suspicion that perhaps Jesus didn't really exist. That he was this accumulation of myths that happened over the first few centuries. Or, or perhaps that this idea that he rose from the dead was just this beautiful hope in the hearts of his disciples that wanted this idea of a man who was close to God to continue on and continue to inspire them throughout history. That, that it, it doesn't matter whether Jesus really lived and died. What matters is, is the hope that this inspires in your hearts. See, no, 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 no. There are certain historical facts Jesus was born, he lived, he did miracles, he walked upon this very earth, he breathed the air you and I breathe, he was killed, he rose again from the dead, he ascended to heaven, those are the historical facts. But, those facts alone, and even believing those facts alone, don't constitute saving faith. All right, you have to understand what those saving facts mean. They have theological significance. The theological meaning of these, these historical facts. What does it mean that Jesus died? I want to express to you the, uh, the fusing of historical facts with theological meaning. Jesus died, historical fact. For our sins, theological meaning. You see what's going on there? The fact is that Jesus died. What does that mean? It means he was dying for our sins. Here's a fact Jesus was raised, theological meaning, for our justification. It's not just the historical facts of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It is what was going on. By his death, God was saying anyone who believes in this man, this God-man who died, will be saved because he died for their sin. That's the meaning, okay? So, there are the historical facts, and then there is the theological meaning, but That still doesn't constitute saving faith. Why? Because there has to be a personal response. It's one thing to know that Jesus died and then He rose again. you got the historical facts. It's another thing to know that His death and resurrection were for your sins and justification. But it is a different thing altogether to believe, Jesus died for me. You see the difference? Now there are many people that could actually believe that the facts of the gospel but are unwilling to accept them for themselves personally. Now, just for the sake of time, uh, I, I won't, there, there are a bunch of passages I, I want to go through, but I, I, we don't have time to do that. It's 9.55, uh, rushing on here, because I want to get on to these gospel counterfeits. The gospel counterfeits. Is that next on your handout? Where do these, uh, where do these gospel counterfeits come from? Okay. And, and, by, and here, here's, I'm kind of transitioning in this, in this whole series because I've, this is the introduction to the series itself, the six weeks, okay? Um, but, but then over the, the rest of this time and next session, I'm going to be showing you four common counterfeits of the gospel. How many of you have seen counterfeit money before? Raise your hand. Counterfeit money. Okay. How many of you have printed counterfeit money? Raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. Please no. Counterfeits, they look convincing. It is because they look like the real thing that makes them so dangerous. If I try to print counterfeit, let's say I try to draw counterfeit money. I got crayons and I made this piece of paper green and I got my scissors and I cut it to about the same shape and I draw a picture of, of Benjamin Franklin and I try to hand it to the The person at Target It's like, all right, sir, (laughs) thank you, that's funny. Do you really want to purchase these items? If so, give us real money. So, this, the thing, because it's not believable. The thing that makes gospel counterfeits so dangerous is because they look so much like the real thing. And because they have so many elements of the truth in them. That's what makes them dangerous. So these gospel counterfeits, uh, they, they, I, I would say, we, you and I find ourselves constantly convinced by gospel counterfeits throughout the day. And I'll explain why in a little bit. Where do they come from? Gospel counterfeits come from, first of all, unbelief. I think that's the first one, Heather, unbelief. It seems like we cannot believe the gospel because there are certain parts in our hearts that resist believing the gospel. We talked about this uh, just a few moments ago with people who would doubt the historical nature of the gospel events, that Jesus was a real person. He was born of a virgin. He died a death for sins and He rose again. Some people just fail to believe that. And that's one uh, enemy or or, or source of gospel uh, counterfeits. Uh, Another one is this. Pride. Pride. Now, I know this is a foreign concept to us all. Pride. I say that facetiously. But this is one reason why we are constantly in danger of believing gospel counterfeits. Because the true gospel is a pride-crushing message. It absolutely destroys our pride. Why? Because it says that we are more sinful than we ever dared believe. Like, you have no idea how sinful you are. We have no idea how deeply we have offended God. And there's only one way we can know that, and that is by seeing what Jesus did for us on the cross. That crushes my pride. That makes me feel bad. That is one enemy. That's why I I said a few moments ago, we are constantly in danger of believing gospel counterfeits because there is in our own hearts an enemy that wants to bump us one way or the other. That wants to throw our plow, as it were, to the left or to the right because we have pride in our hearts. We want to think that we can contribute to our salvation. That there is this stubborn tendency in our own hearts to think, I can do it. And I want a pat on the back. And there's some sort of flower in my heart deep down inside that if only the people in my life would get out of the way that I could bloom. Right? We have this inherent idea. It's not just from our culture. So many times you try to blame all our problems of Christians. Oh, the culture, the culture, the culture. Do you know where culture comes from? It comes from our hearts. That's where culture comes from. It's rooted in our hearts. Pride, but also the, the opposite of that, of that would be this, this whole idea of despair. to to think that I I could never ever accept a message that tells me that I'm loved so much that I could be embraced so freely we can can fall off on either sides and refuse to believe the gospel because we refuse to believe this concept of unconditional love and we we think no I'm, I'm too bad Isn't it funny how our hearts can work? They can we can argue both ways, and that's where these enemies of the gospel, these gospel counterfeits, come from. All right, how can we detect uh, gospel counterfeits? What is the nature of these? Uh, There are two primary ways in which counterfeits of the gospel express themselves, and that is in beliefs and behaviors. Beliefs and behaviors. Uh, I want you to look at, uh, go to 1 Timothy, and as you turn there, it's helpful to remember that the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, the first one that we have here in our Bibles, is a letter in which Paul is constantly showing the integral connection between belief and behavior. That's why he says in verse 3 of chapter 1, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What Paul is saying is this, Timothy, stay where you are, preach the gospel, because some people have watered it down. And they've distracted people from the gospel by becoming obsessed with minutia. By becoming so uh, interested in details that are extraneous to the gospel. And the result is... That's a a problem with belief, okay? The result is wrong behavior. When the gospel is rightly taught and understood, it produces right behavior. You're always going to be able to detect a gospel distortion when there is present a belief that produces pride. Or a belief that produces, oh, it doesn't matter what I do because God loves me no matter what, so I'm going to... I'm going to sin here a little bit, or I'm going to go against God's word, because God loves me unqualifiedly, and, and Jesus died for me, and, and I'm saved and settled, doesn't matter what I do. The gospel doesn't teach that. The gospel doesn't teach that it doesn't matter what you do. Right? So whenever there is a, a distortion, a deviation from the gospel, a gospel counterfeit, it can always be detected in beliefs and behavior. Um, I'll go to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. And this verse should not only help us understand the interconnectedness, uh, the the bond between belief and behavior, but also the importance of living in the gospel, not treating it as mere training wheels. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27 says this, "...only let your manner of life," is that belief or behavior, manner of life, that's behavior, let the way you live, your behavior, Be worthy of what? You see in verse 27? Of the gospel. Okay? Let the way you live, let your behavior match your beliefs. And whenever there is something wrong, whenever there's something distorted in your beliefs, it's going to be manifested in your behavior as well. And this is the result of gospel counterfeits. Um, Let's look at one more. And this is from the letter to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 14. If, if you think that for some reason if you're still unconvinced that the gospel is, is, is an essential thing for you to live in and, and, and not to simply move past, uh, consider that even the Apostle Peter needed to be reminded to live in step with the gospel. Folks, he preached the gospel. He preached the first sermon recorded in the book of Acts. He was the spark of the first great revival, the first great awakening. And yet, what is going on here in chapter 2 is that he lost sight of something, of Galatians, as he lost sight of something very, very important. Paul is saying, I saw that... I'll actually start with verse 11, because you need a little bit of the context of what's going on here. When Cephas... Cephas is just another name for Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, I, this is Paul speaking, opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. Why? For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. What was going on is that Peter, even though he knew that the gospel meant... That there was not this division between Jews and Gentiles, because of his of peer pressure, a strong personality came who was insisting on these 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 cultural differences. Know that the the uh, the Gentiles uncircumcised cannot eat with the Jews, the circumcised. And and Peter, know I know the gospel means that that's changed now, and and we should be willing to embrace and welcome anyone. Yet he's he's hypocritically saying, okay guys, oh here they come. No, oh, I'm not going to eat with those Gentiles. Of course not. What is Paul Paul do? This is in verse 14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with what? You see it there? Look at verse 14 of Galatians 2. Paul said, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. You see the link between behavior and belief. Their behavior was not aligned with the truth of the gospel. Again, going back to the plow metaphor. Peter's focus should have been on this, Jesus died for sinners, all of them. Jews, Gentiles, barbarians, Romans, everybody, and that's what unifies us, and I'm going to stay with that, even if it means I'm going to welcome and I'm going to eat with Gentiles. But he got bumped off. You see what's going on? Instead, he needed to align his behavior with the truth of the gospel and keep plowing a straight line. So, what the nature of gospel counterfeits is when beliefs and behaviors are not aligned according to the gospel. How are we doing on time? 10.07. I, we, we might need to br- actually bring back these handouts next week because I, I, I probably won't have time to fully explain these two gospel counterfeits that I intended to in this lesson. But we'll do what we can, Okay. Alright, all right. All right. Uh, the nature of these counterfeits, uh, first of all, distortions about what God does and distortions about what we do. I think we can just uh, summarize it that way, uh, that these, these can be twisted or distorted in either way. Okay, let's look at this first counterfeit, and that is the gospel is about what we want God to do. This is a common gospel counterfeit and you see it in the various forms of what have been called or what has been called the prosperity gospel. How many of you have heard that term before the prosperity gospel? Does somebody want to just take a stab at a definition or what what would you understand the prosperity gospel to be? What does that mean when we say the prosperity gospel? Anybody want to try that? Yes, Dan. Okay. Yeah, it's this whole idea that it, you 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 do a certain thing God's just going to dump all these blessings on you. Alright? Anybody else want to express maybe your understanding of of a prosperity gospel? Yes? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, there are are two sides of that then. So there's this idea that... Okay, I've heard this expressed. You're a child of the king. The king doesn't want his children walking around like beggars. God wants you to be well-dressed, driving nice vehicles. If you can believe that, you can attain that. Oh, doesn't that sound inspiring? Doesn't that sound... but it's actually it's actually a crushing, a crushing message. And and for the reason that, that Dave just expressed. So, the truth is we live in a fallen world. We live in a world in which bad things do happen to good people. We live in a world that the very best man who walked on this earth died the most horrible death you can imagine. If anybody deserved the blessing of God, it was Jesus of Nazareth. And can we expect those of us who follow Him to just live in absolute luxury? And when you don't, are you to assume that God has turned His face from you? Like, this is not the Gospel! This is something that we need to be alert to, and I think it's easy to identify when we read it in books entitled, Your Best Life Now, by authors that we know to be prosperity gospel preachers, but it's harder to identify when we see it in things like, I know God wants me to be happy, and so I'm willing to compromise on things I know to be true, because God just wants me to be happy. Hey, this happens in our hearts. See, it's, I, I want us to get away from the notion that these counterfeit gospels are coming from somewhere else on the outside. They do, of course. And there are things in our culture that are constantly pressing in on us. But they wouldn't be compelling to us or appealing to us if they were not something in our own hearts that just are magnetized by them. Because we, we do have pride and we do have this, this wish that God would do things our way. This is the uh, a gospel counterfeit What is wrong with this counterfeit? This is important to understand. Uh, The prosperity gospel, whether it's a financial prosperity gospel or an emotional prosperity gospel, like you'll be, uh, trust God, you may not be uh, rich, but you will be happy. Uh, And and how is happiness defined, of course. Uh, Your relationships will work out. Your business model will succeed. These are different um, iterations of the prosperity gospel. Here's the problem. It misdiagnoses our deepest need. It somehow assumes that our biggest problem is financial. Or that our deepest need is educational. Or that our biggest problem is emotional. The Gospel teaches that your biggest problem is neither money, nor friends, nor emotions. Your biggest problem is that you are under the wrath of a righteous God. That is the biggest problem. Because no amount of well-adjusted emotions, or no amount of money, or no amount of friends are going to save you on that final day. It's such a short-sighted view of what is going on in reality. The reality is that we are sinners. And that we have sinned against God. It misdiagnoses our deepest problem which is sin and alienation from God, and how can you give the right answer, the right uh, solution, the remedy, unless you have the right diagnosis? These these counterfeit gospels, they misdiagnose our problem, and so they mistreat our our, uh, problem. We should be very aware of this. We should be aware of this in our own hearts. Examples... excuse me, can be multiplied of ways in which we see this at work in our own lives. Let's look, uh, we'll begin looking briefly at counterfeit two, and I may go back and and flesh these out a little bit next time. But this counterfeit is, the gospel is about living, sorry, I didn't, uh, the gospel is about living like Jesus. Okay, have you ever heard this? Preach the gospel, use words if necessary. How many of you have heard that before? Read to the gospel. Use words if necessary. Um, the implication of that is that the gospel is primarily about a way of living, than a content of believing. Uh, the implication is that uh, you can the 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 main thing about the gospel is living a, an ethically uh, elevated life. The problem with this is that it sees Jesus and His work as more of an inspiration, more of a role model than Master and Savior. Jesus did not come merely to set a good example for people. Now, I want you to think about that and listen to it carefully. Jesus did not come merely to set a good example for people. He came to die in the place of people. And toward that mission, yes, he did set the highest example for us. But his central mission, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. The Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. Yes, Jesus is our model in every respect, but the main mission he came to accomplish was to die in the place of sinners. But this is the component of the this counterfeit gospel that is is tends to be suppressed. Uh, even I, I, I'm not trying to throw this under the bus here, but even the the W W J D uh, craze or, or, or movement, you know, what would Jesus do? Uh, even that often has its kind of a, an underlying assumption here is that. What really matters is what Jesus would do and if I do that then I'm I'm living out the gospel. When you read the gospels the emphasis on what did did Jesus do. He he died for us. He rose again. His, His work to save us. Jesus' moral teachings and his moral example would be nothing unless they were undergirded by what he did in behalf of sinners to save them. And so we tend to find ourselves kind of being sucked into that counterfeit as well. The gospel is the news about what God has done through Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. And we're going to be looking at fuller explanations of that uh, in in the weeks to come. So next time, just so you know where we're going, I will flesh out some more of the, more of the details on these two gospel counterfeits. And if you can, uh, on your handout... Uh, at the end of that outline there is this gray box in, in uh, suggesting ways that you can prepare for next time. Okay? And, and your, what you get out of this, your benefit of this series will be enhanced uh, the more you put into it. Okay? So I really commend uh, the, this, this practice to you of, of actually preparing ahead of time so that when you come it will, it will mean all the more uh, in terms of its impact to you. Uh, so we're going to look at two more gospel counterfeits and, and actually the ones we're going to look at next time are are the ones that we tend most to fall into. I think we tend to be most susceptible to this, to these. And before we begin looking at the major movements of the Gospel, the deep background of the Gospel, and then later on at the close of the series, uh, some of the implications of this message.